It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hello, good morning. Welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray with you until 11 a.m. Plenty of debate and discussion on the issues of the moment. And let's start with the story that it seems shows no sign of going away for the moment, and that is the issue regarding plans to change the number of functions at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Now, as you know, last week, last Monday to be exact, the HSE announced plans for the final step, as they call it, in the transition of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan to what they call a Model 2 hospital, and this will involve the evolution of the hospital's emergency department to a 24-hour medical assessment unit. Now, this has caused some anger and alarm locally, as many people believe that the emergency department is being closed down entirely, but the HSE say, well, actually, it's not being closed down entirely, it's just that it's going to uh, be reduced in the way it functions. And we've had the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, saying that there are no plans uh, to implement these measures. And uh, there's been concern about whether or not Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda has the capacity. Sinn Féin is holding a public meeting in the Newgrange Hotel in Navan tonight. And I'm joined on the line right now by the party's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan. Uh, First of all, David, uh, you're holding a meeting tonight. I mean, we know what the public anger is. So what will you and your party leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, be telling those who are in attendance? Well, it's, it's, it's also about listening, Ken. So, yes, there is a lot of anger in uh, Mead, but also in other counties as well, because it won't just be Mead who will be affected by this decision. It's other hospitals in other regions and counties which will have to take up the slack. But in prim- primarily, of course, it's the people of Navan and the people of Mead. So we want to listen to what people have to say. I would encourage people to attend. It's really important that we protect and enhance emergency services at Navin Hospital because if you look what's happening elsewhere across the state, we have a real crisis in the in emergency department wait times. On average, for the months of April and the months of May, right across all of the emergency departments, people were waiting over 11 hours for access. In some hospitals, that was higher. In the Matter Hospital in Dublin, it was close to 14 hours where people were waiting for access to care. So any reduction in emergency department services at this time, I think, would be a disaster. Would put obviously real pressures on other hospitals that would have to take up the slack. But also with the clear loss for the people of Navin, 
And as we know, the county of Mead is growing in population and it makes no sense whatsoever at this point to be looking at downgrading services. If anything, we need to protect in the first instance, but also enhance emergency services at Navin. So we're calling on people to attend the public meeting. It'll be attended by the Sinn Féin president. It'll be attended by myself as the health spokesperson and our two TDs in Mead as well. And I think it's a real opportunity for Sinn Féin as the main opposition party to obviously set out our position but also to listen to what people have to say, because at the end of the day, this is about the people of Mead, the people of Navin, and their experience. This is their hospital. Okay. And I think that they have an obligation, as they, they have shown in the past, to protect their hospital and services at the hospital. Okay. The HSE is saying that once established, the new medical assessment unit will operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What's so bad about that? Well, you have to first of all understand what the medical assessment unit in a level two hospital will do. So there are three uh, types of medical assessment units. The first is an acute medical unit and the second is an acute medical assessment unit. And those two units are located in level three and level four hospitals. And they are joined, obviously, with fully fledged emergency department units. And they do all of the emergency care. So the medical assessment unit Uh, is part and parcel of your emergency department. What we're seeing here is it's going to be a medical assessment unit that you typically see in a much smaller hospital, in a level two hospital, and it's paired with a minor injury unit or a a local injury unit. And obviously any emergency will not be uh, attended to in that type of unit. It's also going to be unusual that this would be a 24-7 unit because in the vast, vast majority of smaller hospitals, in fact all but one, they operate from 8am to 8pm and they are aligned with the opening hours of the local injury unit. And this seems to be uh, operated on a 24-7 basis if it goes ahead. But the problem is that that also could be lost in time because if you look at all of the other level two hospitals, they are almost all aligned to the times that the local injuries unit will open. And we're being told that will only open from 8am to 8pm Monday to Sunday, seven days a week. There's also concerns as well from GPs because this will be a GP referral service only. And at a time when people are finding it difficult to get access to a GP, where out of our services is obviously really challenging. And we're saying to people that they will need a GP referral to go through the medical assessment unit. That will create concerns for people. And I know that GPs who provide the out of our services have expressed concerns. So there isn't agreement on this by medics across the board. There's lots of unanswered questions in relation to the impact that this will have on Navin Hospital in a region that is growing in population. But also we haven't been told exactly what what this medical assessment will do, unit will do, how it will work uh, and the viability of that into the future as well. But equally what alternative capacity will be put into other hospitals. Uh, And given that we have the crisis, as I said, in almost every emergency department right across the state, it's clearly not the time to be looking at taking emergency services out of any hospital. Okay, David, but let me let me put the point. Party, I think we have an obligation as well to support the people of Navin uh, and to support the campaign to retain services which we believe should be retained. Sure. Navin is the third smallest hospital in the country and uh, the government, i.e. the Department of Health, has been on a mission for some years now to create what are called centres of excellence. In this case, it's Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. Isn't it better that if somebody is in an accident somewhere outside Navin or somewhere uh, in County Meath, that they get to the best 
centre where the experts are, the best equipment is, the best facilities are, it's better that they get treatment there rather than going to Navin where the best equipment doesn't exist or rather there isn't the same volume of equipment, there isn't the same volume of expertise. It's better to go to Drogheda uh, knowing that the best expertise is there and there's a better chance of, if you like, getting the best treatment available. Isn't it better to have that system than retaining Navin as, if you like, uh, a hospital that isn't up to the same standard uh, as Drogheda, certainly in terms of facilities? Yes, but Navin also provides a very essential service. And obviously, if you have very specialised uh, acute care uh, and emergency care, which needs to be done, there is the possibility, and it happens already, that the, the hospital in Navin is bypassed and people are taken to Drogheda or Dublin. That happens when you have a very serious accident, obviously, and, and a trauma case that needs to be done in a specialised hospital. That happens everywhere. It happens in the southeast where we have emergency departments elsewhere. But if there's a very uh, specialised uh, care needed, the person is, is brought to the regional hospital. This is about protecting the service which exists in Navin. But I would also say, if you look at the Midwest region and Limerick, the exact same arguments were made when the emergency departments were taken out of Nina out of Ennis, out of St. John's and Limerick. And what happened? It's an absolute disaster in Limerick. Only this week or last week, we had a report from HICWIP, which outlined in very stark terms the reality of what's happening in Limerick Hospital. And we ended up with an emergency department, which is a single point of failure because it is the only emergency department servicing the Midwest region. And that has created real pressures. And what happened? All of those emergency departments were closed. All of the promises that were made to the people of the Midwest when those emergency departments were closing, that additional capacity would be put into Limerick, that this would be a safer service, that people wouldn't be waiting uh, as long. People are waiting longer. And, and the wait times in the emergency department in Limerick now stands at 14 hours. Uh, on average, every day. Uh, and in some cases, it's over 24 hours on some days. That's not a safe service. So we have to be really, really careful how we approach this. And this is, and, and I get this, an emotive issue for people. And I also understand that we have to listen to medical advice. We have to listen to people who work in the hospital. But we also have to provide what is the best service for patients. And we have to look at all of the issues, including the population of need, including the fact that people will want to retain uh, their uh, services in as best they can in their local okay, hospitals. But and yes, you can have specialised care in Drogheda, which exists, and in the matter and in Conley, and that already happens, and, and people from Navin and Mead yeah. already do get brought okay. to those hospitals. Okay, but the, the services that we have. The HSE made this announcement last Monday, and then the Minister for Health uh, issued a statement saying that these proposed changes are not going to take place. So isn't all this a lot of hullabaloo about nothing? Well, I, I think that the people of Navin are not going to buy that because what happened at the meeting that was organised by Minister Donnelly, attended by local TDs, including by a local minister in, in the constituency, if not a number of local ministers in surrounding constituencies and obviously opposition TDs as well. A document was given to all of the Oireachtas members which had clear dates, clear timeframes. On the day that the minister was saying this, we had a press conference organised by very senior medical officials in the HSE saying that this was going to happen, that there was clear dates and clear timeframes and all of that obviously creates real confusion. So we know that there are plans within the HSE for this to proceed. Obviously, uh, Minister Donnelly has put a pause on this and he says the final decision has not been made. 
But the best way to ensure that the right decision is made for the people of Navan is to mobilise. And that's why we as a party, as the main opposition party, in my view, can have a responsibility to come into Navan, to listen to what everybody has to say, including those who might have a different opinion. Come, have your opinion, have your say. We want to make the best decision for the people of Navan. We want to listen, we want to engage, and we want to play our part in mobilising people in defence of services in Navan. And I think it would be really powerful to have the leader of the main opposition party, the main opposition health spokesperson, local TDs, all listening to what local people have to say. And I okay, would encourage but, people outside of Navin and me to come as well if they feel they will be affected okay, by but this. Okay, but let me put the point to you. Uh, one of the issues that came up on this programme, uh, we interviewed a number of people over the last seven days, and one thing that I think everybody was in agreement with is that the capacity at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda has not expanded accordingly uh, to deal with what would be the increased um, input of patients coming from Navin. If the hospital bed capacity at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda did expand, just say by an extra 50 beds, would you then still accept that the right way to go is to have Drogheda as the centre of excellence for the northeast region? Well, I think, first of all, those promises of additional capacity have to be made good, and it hasn't been made good. So the problem I have with all of this is that you're offering this up as uh, it has to be one or the other, and it isn't the case. I think we continue to, we can continue to provide some level of emergency care in Navan while at the same time scaling up bed capacity to provide other services because of the growing population in need. When, when people say to me, we should close an emergency department because it's deemed to be unsafe. Uh, and obviously that has to be taken very seriously. But there is very few emergency departments that you could argue are safe at the moment, given the high levels of wait times. So if you look at Limerick, for example, it's now the only emergency department in the Midwest. It was deemed by HICWIT to be unsafe in many different areas in a report that was done. Nobody is arguing that we close the emergency department in Limerick. What we need to do is fix the problem, put in the additional capacity, And if I was Minister for Health, yes, of course, I would listen to medics. I would work with hospital management. I visited uh, the hospital in Drogheda recently. And I don't believe that there is full agreement from hospital management and clinicians in Drogheda that this is the best option either. So you have to listen to everybody involved, okay, but not just people in, in who work in the hospital in Navin. Of course, they have to be engaged. With okay, you Shin- have to listen to all. Right? All right. Sinn Féin is uh, putting down a motion in the Dáil this week. Can you just tell listeners what exactly you will be calling for in that motion? Well, primarily we're calling on the Minister for Health to clearly state his position. Uh, and I Which think he has done. A statement. No, I don't believe he has. I think what he has said is that no decision has yet been made. But yeah. we need to know whether or not the Minister has an intention of delivering on the HSE's objective of closing the emergency department. And is it simply the case that it's, we'll wait a while and then make a decision in a couple of weeks or a couple of months and you put it uh, well earlier, uh, or was it your producer I spoke to before the programme, that this has been an issue for a long number of years, that there, there has been a lot of speculation about services at Navin for many, many, many years. What people want is certainty. And I think there's a, an obligation on the Minister for Health to clearly state what the position is once and for all. Is it government policy to close the emergency department and, by the way, close the ICU beds and high dependency unit beds, which would also be a loss? 
yeah, is but, that sensitization or not. And we yeah, want but, to but, do, these but just so that there's clarity on this, the HSE indicated last week, and we spoke to the clinical director at Our Lady's Hospital in Navin, Jerry McEntee, on this very programme, and he said the plan is not to close the A&E department, but to reduce its capacity. In other words, 10% of those coming through the doors at Navin will in all likelihood be deferred to Blanchardstown, Mullingar or Drogheda. So the signs are that the emergency department is not closing down. So that clarifies that position. So, But it doesn't, Ken, if I can just come in there, because that's simply not the case. Because in the briefing documents that, were, that was presented to Oireachtas members by the HSE, it clearly states in black and white that the emergency department will close. And yes, OK, now we, we didn't see that. Assessment unit. But yes, it's being replaced with a medical assessment unit. The medical assessment units that will operate in Navin will be the same medical assessment unit that operates in all level two hospitals. It's aligned to a local injuries unit. It's not an acute medical assessment unit or acute assessment unit that's aligned to a fully fledged emergency department or any type of emergency department. It's a different type of service. So it is a downgrade. It is a loss. It is the closing of the emergency department unit as we know it, including the ICU beds and HDU beds. That's a fact. Okay, well, of course, we don't get those briefings. The Rock this members get them, but we don't. So you, you, you'll understand where I'm coming from yeah. based on the interviews we did over the last uh, seven days. So basically, you're going to be calling in this motion for the Minister for Health to give clarity as to what exactly the long-term plan is for Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Is that the case? But also to set out in what way he's going to protect and enhance services. So that goes back to all of those promises that were made. What the HSE is also saying, and I'm saying that there is some merit in what some of the HSE says in terms of scaling up capacity in Navin. I want Navin to have full capacity to do more elective procedures, to obviously do the full range of procedures that's possible in a level two hospital. So let's spell out what what exactly will be put into the hospital over the next number of months. We need a clear plan that's not just about we're going to take services out on a particular date. We don't want that to happen. We want to protect the emergency department services. But equally, I want to hear what is the plan from the Minister for Health to scale up capacity in Navin, but also scale up capacity elsewhere in primary care and in community care. Because one of the problems we also have, which is aligned with what's happening in our emergency departments, people are finding it very difficult to access GP care, out-of-hours care. We need a plan to to ratchet up all of those services which are linked with what's happening in your emergency department. All right, and that meeting is taking place in the New Grange Hotel in Navan tonight. I think it's at 8 o'clock. Now, just before I... Sorry, half seven, my apologies, 7.30 in the New Grange Hotel in Navan. Before I let you go, David, there's a story in the Irish Examiner this morning that the chief executive of the HSE has raised the prospect of reintroducing mandatory mask wearing on public transport and other enclosed spaces following what appears to be a a somewhat surprising increase in the number of COVID-19 hospitalisations. And the latest figures reveal that 537 patients are in hospitals around the country with COVID and that amounts to a threefold increase from the 180 patients that were in hospital on May the 31st. Um, Are things starting to get out of control again or what do you think uh, the public should be doing? We have rising cases Ken that's for sure. Uh, Obviously we all need to be vigilant. We have to listen to what advice is there. In terms of mask wearing on public transport it is already public health advice. That's what people should do. It is only advisory. If there is to be any change to that to make it mandatory, I think that would have to be underpinned by advice coming from the chief medical officer. 
and not uh, the uh, CEO or the Director General of, of the HSE or anybody else would have to come from the Chief Medical Officer. But I would encourage people to listen very carefully to what current advice is. Uh, we, we are seeing rising cases. It is having an impact in hospitals uh, right across the state. It's resulting in more cancellations of services, which is obviously driving up waiting lists. And obviously everything that we can do to protect hospital services and frontline staff has to be done. Uh, but I think we have to be very careful about new restrictions coming in. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that mandatory restrictions at this point in time are necessary. But if the clear medical advice in terms of mandatory mask wearing was given, obviously that would need to be heeded. Uh, but I think that's as far as restrictions or medical advice will go. But we have to wait and see what is advised by the chief medical officer. My understanding is no such advice has yet been given. But if and when it comes, it obviously has to be listened to and heeded by the minister. All right. Okay, we leave it there. That's uh, David Cullinan, who is the Sinn Féin spokesperson on health and a member of the Oireachtas Health Committee and TD for Waterford. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. Councillor Ronan Moore of the Social Democrats uh, in Meath is on the line right now. So, Ronan, what's your, your gripe in relation to the planned changes at Navin Hospital? Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me on. Ken, um, I guess my concern at the moment is that in the rush to this debate between, I guess, government parties and some of the opposition parties, is that what we have a problem, we might have danger of, is that we lose sight of what's driving this in terms of the, the medical evidence and in terms of what and who we should be listening to. Um, I think, like to start off in a, in a point of agreement, we're all in agreement that the health service is currently not fit for purpose and we could spend a whole, a whole day, a whole week talking about these issues. And I think... We are all in agreement in terms of the, the, the political parties in terms of how we can fix this, which is the, the full implementation of Slauncher Care, which, as your listeners might already know, is the first time in, in our nation's history that we've had cross-party agreement on a specific roadmap to change our health service into a kind of a one-tier public health service type of health service that every European Western country takes for granted and which Ireland has never had. But I think what's really important is that Slauncher Care, which every party has signed up to, is medically led. Um, it was chaired by our own co-party leader, Roisin Shortall, and it's medically led by the professionals um, who are working in this area. And I think that brings us to Navin, and I just feel that the decisions being made around Navin is a danger that these decisions about Navin Hospital are driven by, not by facts, but by politics. Like, I listen to your show... But, aren't they, uh, but, no, but aren't they also driven by what could be best described as population dynamics? Drogheda is now the biggest town in Ireland. The hinterland around Drogheda, whether it be Laytown, Bettystown, Duleeks, Mullen, Ashburn, the volume of people in the greater Drogheda area suggests that it's logical to have a centre of excellence in Drogheda uh, instead of Navin because Navin is now the third smallest hospital in the country. So logic says that if they can increase the bed capacity in Drogheda, that's where the centre of excellence in the northeast region should be. Isn't that the case? Well, when you say logic, I think we need to expand that. Like medical, scientific, national, international evidence is what we need to be driven by. And that's what Mr McEntee the, the clinical manager of, uh, of, our, of our ladies in Avon was speaking to on, on Tuesday. When it comes to the, the rationale, the reasons for it, um, something that he was very clear to say and when he put it to him was that this is not a cost-saving measure. Um, I'm not a medical expert and I think uh, that's really important that we recognise that in this debate it's medical experts we need to listen to. But what he said and from what I could, when I listened attentively to a number of interviews that he carried out throughout the week is that one of the big challenges is that you need to have 
a, a number of, like, I guess it's the critical care that is absolutely important. And unless you have a, a number of people who are dealing with this um, in terms of the professionals, the, the anaesthetists, the, anaesthetists, the, the surgeons, um, they need to have a certain number of, of patients that they're dealing with on a day-in, day-out basis. And if they don't have that number, well, they don't, they're not able to, to, to continue to refine and hone their skills. And these skills are, are, are what saves people's lives at the end of the day. And as he mentioned in, on your programme, the number of people who come into Navin um, to be to be looked at on an annual basis is simply not at the number that okay, but, um, they can guarantee public sure, safety. But, and I think that's the key. OK, but it's not all bad for Navin Hospital. I mean, this is I nothing more than a, than a reconfiguration. I'm just looking at the statistics here that uh, several consultant posts have been developed in Navin. Uh, Our Ladies Hospital in Navin recently opened a new second theatre. It recently opened a state-of-the-art laboratory. There has been investment uh, in a new state-of-the-art digital radiology equipment unit. Navin has also opened a new rehabilitation unit. Uh, there's a, an introduction of a new surgical observation unit planned and uh, the chronic disease management teams are being developed through Slauncher Care. So while uh, the accident and emergency issues are all going to transfer mainly to Drogheda, other areas are going to actually be improved in Navin. So it's not all bad, is it? Well, from what Mr. McIntyre said, I, I don't, I absolutely don't think so. But I mean, I would be like many of your listeners, and I would have attended the, to Save Navin Hospital meetings over the years. But I guess what struck me when this came to us in the chamber on the Monday, and the, and the news broke, was was the comments and statements that were made, not just by Mr. McIntyre, whose, whose life is, I guess, is dedicated to looking after patient safety, but also the clinicians that are around and the whole team, from nurses all the way up to surgeons. And listen to him on, on your program on Tuesday, um, and on other interviews, like he talks about, neither like quotes, making it safer, busier, and more efficient. He says it's not winding it down. Some of the language that has been used in terms of closure and um, downgrading, and I know when uh, um, uh, um, David Cullen in, in previous segments mentioned about a document that I haven't seen, but as far as Mr. McIntyre, and I guess for me, as not the, as, because I'm not a medical expert, I have to be led by medical evidence. And I guess as a part of social service, we have to be led by medical evidence. And if it's a case that, and I guess probably what's, what struck me most during the week is that when it was put to, to um, uh, Mr. McIntyre in terms of that there are people in both the government and obviously opposition, but in government um, who are in disagreement with what, what he is saying, he did ask the questions that who does he expect the public to believe? Politicians who have no experience of medicine, as he said, or the nurses, the physicians, the surgeons, the anesthetists, the clinical director, the management of the hospital, the management of Ireland's East, um, who are dealing with these medical issues day in, day out. And for me, I guess I find that hard to deal with. And I guess probably what goes to the heart of this, and this is where... I guess we have to be careful as elected representatives. I've heard people saying that if Narvan Hospital closes... Um, but the hospital lost, won't be closing. That, that's it's crucial exactly, in this whole conversation. Exactly, and that's crucial. And this, But this is... If people are hearing this message, and which is the message that, and, uh, that has been said and has gone out there, people are understandably going to worry. I've been treated in the emergency department. I've had loved ones whose lives have been saved in the emergency department. So it's a really important issue for people. But I guess if I'm listening and I want to make up my mind, I'm listening to the medical experts. Like David Colan mentions, but oh, we listen to everybody as if everybody has equal weight in this matter. It, like when you go into a surgery, if you go into a trauma emergency department, you, you listen to the medical experts, and then you, you don't then start making other 
getting contributions from other people, certainly not elected representatives. It's the medical experts that we put our lives in. Our, our, our yeah, lives so the point, the point you're making is we should listen to the medics because they know what's best. I, that's the exact point I'm making. And again, listen to your programme on Tuesday. When, and I think it's, it's, it's a bit unfair, very unfair that Dr. Mar- or, sorry, Ms. McIntyre has to come on to programmes like yourselves to effectively defend a position that really the government party should be making the, the, the defending now that, and, and, and doing so and trying to, I guess, allay people's fears. But he has mentioned about the issues that need to be done in order okay. to get to, to make that transition. And that's really important. But at the end of the day, we have to listen to that. And I think that's, okay. that's, that's a challenge. And okay. so just and one final point, Kenneth. If I, if I Very may, briefly. The, H, the HSC does have a history of, of breaking news and making promises that they don't always um, stand by. And that's really important. So they've handled it poorly. But at the end of the day, I think it has to be a, a measured debate where we, ha- we can be listening to our experts and then people that fear to be allayed and that people of need can get the best possible um, safety when they, when they go into the hospital, where that is. And in that case, it's the medical experts that I think we have to be listening to. OK, well, that, that's a fair point. Uh, that's uh, Councillor Ronan Moother, who is a Social Democrats councillor on Meath County Council, basically saying we should listen to the doctors and the medical people because they know best, and that basically the politicians are opposed to this because, no doubt, they're thinking of their seats at the next election. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Tom was in touch from Navin to say we can have all the public meetings and protests we want, but if the HSE is saying that the very seriously ill patients need to be seen to in a medical centre of excellence, who can argue with that if Navin is not equipped to treat these patients? At least they are keeping the hospital open and they will have the medical assessment unit and other services there. Now, a story in the Irish Independent last week called our attention. Quite a serious story it is too. A woman who walked into Drogheda Garda station last Wednesday told officers she had been trafficked into Ireland for the purpose of forcible organ harvesting. The woman who was understood to be in her 20s is now in state care. This is quite a a serious development. Danielle McLaughlin is Policy and Communications Officer with Ruhama which provides support to women affected by prostitution, trafficking and other forms of sexual exploitation. First of all, uh, Daniel, I don't know if you're aware, is this a once-off or are you hearing similar stories like this? Good morning, Ken. Um, it is a very unusual story. We were we were shocked to read that ourselves. Um, and reading the article in, in the news, um, the guards did appear to, to sound like it had been a very extremely rare case as well and that there was no knowledge of any cases as such in Ireland or any facility and you know conducting any form of organ harvesting but I think what they were trying to get at was that you know they're looking into other possible um, reasons around this such as you know using this as a threat to coerce women into doing other types of activities <clears throat> and in our experience in Rahama and our knowledge of the sector and the sex trade you know the, the large majority of women um, who are trafficked into the country um, are usually for um, sexual exploitation purposes. So our concern is that you know that this this is another case and another area in Ireland where this is happening. Um, but it is not unusual to hear of women who've been trafficked into Ireland. In fact, 
uh, um, trafficking for the, for the purposes of sexual exploitation happens in every county in Ireland. Yeah, the people who are trafficking women into Ireland for sexual exploitation, from what I've read, it seems the bulk of them are coming from Eastern Europe. I mean, do we know how ruthless these gangs are? It's hard to say. I mean, the guards would have that information and probably wouldn't be able to share that with us. But we know that in our services, um, we worked with over 360 women last year and that was they were from uh, uh, 56 different countries. So it is wide and vast and not particularly in one, one area in Ireland or in, in the world. It is global. There are many different countries, many different cultures, many different gangs and criminal groups that are racketing um, and making a profit. It is a multi-million dollar profiting um, business. So there is a demand and there's a trade um, and it exists in Ireland um, and not many people will be aware of it, but it is happening everywhere. Um, and our concern is that, you know, women are, are being, you know, abused. Um, they're, they're suffering from a lot of violence. They're not free. They might look free, but different routes that women will get into um, being trafficked is through threats to their family at home in their home country. Their passports are taken off them. There's threats for them to be deported. They're often um, faced with many deaths because the traffickers brought them over to the country um, in the illusion that they would have a job for the women. Um, and then suddenly they're forced to sell sex to pay off these debts. There's a lot of issues around it, um, and we're concerned that the trade is not going away. In fact, it has, it's getting worse. What can be done legally to stop these traffickers bringing young, vulnerable women into this country? Um, the Garda National Protective Services Bureau is very um, dedicated to this. Um, there's a lot of work going on in the background in terms of monitoring um, issues around trafficking and, and trying to... Um, you know, combat it. Um, the, the difficulty is that some setups uh, originate in different countries, so the guards uh, are restricted in what they can do. But our our law from 2017 um, criminalises the buyer, the sex buyer, um, and the traffickers, um, and any agency profit from from the selling sex. And they decriminalised women um, who are selling sex. So the, the target now is to address the, the demand um, and anyone who's profiting from the exploitation of women. It's also recognised that um, prostitution is a gender-based form of violence. Okay, um, um, There's a lot of work going on in the country to invest in yeah. providing services to support women to, to oh. exit. Okay, Ruhama and several other groups, I think close on 65, close on 70, uh, lobbied the then Minister for Justice, Francis Fitzgerald, to change the law on prostitution in this country. And we now have a situation where it's legal for women to sell sex, it's illegal for men to buy sex. Would you accept that that has become, if you like, an open door for traffickers to move women into Ireland and that has led to this situation? Absolutely not. We we know that the the legislation um, uh, was was implemented as part of the the equality model, as they call it, um, and it has been implemented in several other countries. Um, it's been also to the the Nordic model because it originated in Sweden. But there are several other countries where it's been introduced, and it actually impacted positively on the trade, um, and it is reducing risk. It is reducing the trade, and it is. 
putting more barriers in place to traffickers, pimps, buyers. Um, and we know that in, in countries where uh, selling sex is, is decriminalised and the, the purchase of sex is decriminalised, that actually that, that the sex trade is increasing and is having, still having a negative effect. So we, we believe that the model um, that's been introduced um, is is positive, is working, and there needs to be um, more movement on that, more progress in terms of implementing policies, resources to support women exiting. Um, you know, so there, there's a bit of work to be done, and the legislative review is coming up in the next few months. And um, so we'll be we'll be engaged in that, um, and the government will be listening to any recommendations around improving that okay. implementation. Just one final question, Danielle. I mean, we, we know this happened in Drogheda. There's no reason to uh, suggest or no reason to doubt, rather, that it's happening in other towns and cities around the country. What can members of the public do if they are suspicious about activity in a house or an apartment or wherever? Yeah, I mean, some people might be worried about their own safety by reporting something like this, but you can anonymously report um, and you know, the first step is to go to the Garda or to report there is a confidential telephone number, one eight hundred six 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 one one one. Um and any, you know, local station will also take a, a, a report. Um, but the suspicious activity would be, you know, seeing people coming in and out of a property, men, different men coming in and out of a property, um, women looking quite um controlled or nervous um, and, and not really engaging or integrating with people. Uh, there's there's lots of different signs of trafficking. So the, uh, one of the things we do in Rahama is um, training on, on identifying signs of sex trafficking. We're doing that with okay. frontline services. Um, but for the general public, I think it's looking out for any signs of worrying right. control of women um, and you know, come and going of men in, in one property and the right. would be the first stop. Danielle, we're going to have to leave it there. The clock is against us. That's Danielle McLaughlin, Policy and Communications Officer with Ruhama, which provides support to women affected by prostitution, trafficking and other forms of sexual exploitation. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. PayPal must explain how jobs which were lost in Dundalk last week were advertised in India the day before staff in the Louth operation were told their fate, according to Sinn Féin TD Ruri O'Murray. He joins me on the line right now. Ruri, are you saying that what PayPal have done here is they axed uh, a number of jobs in Dundalk and they re-advertised the same jobs in India simply to save money? Uh, Well, that's what it looks like. And we'll be looking an update from um, PayPal in relation to this. Yeah, look, uh, there has been... Rumours have been rife in Dundalk in relation to jobs being relocated to India, to Bangalore. So that conversation has been going on for a considerable amount of time. Some of it's even happened in the public domain. Um, right. And in fairness, some of the workers were told that, yeah, there were certain jobs that were going to be relocated. But the understanding was in relation to, I think, these UK credit collections, as they're known in PayPal, that wasn't be, to be the case. But on Thursday, yeah, job description went up, which is, I'm going to use the terminology they use, a UK PPC collection specialist, um, which sounds very much like the jobs that um, that went in Dundalk. And the fact is, obviously, 
the consultation period came to an end. People had to go home and await an email to find out. Obviously, there was an element of stress in relation to that. Um, and we are told that, yeah, 33 collection specialists and a further 16 leaders and senior agents were told they were being uh, made redundant. That's 39 out of 91. Now, the bit as well that I'll be looking for an update in relation to is if these people that are being kept in Nundalk are going to work in UK credit collections uh, and there are also going to be people working in the same department um, thousands of miles away, I, I, I imagine that would be a difficult thing to uh, manage. So um, I'm not entirely sure what the issue is. We've obviously had a huge amount of worries in PayPal and the fact that um, like we had the 370 jobs that were lost in, in May, um, 135 obviously in Dublin, 172 in Dundalk. I I imagine that figure hasn't changed, but that's something else we'd be looking for uh, clarity on. And there had been uh, 131 uh, that had lost jobs in April 21. Now, I met with but the just, idea... But just, just let me stop you there, though. Just let me stop you there, Rory. I mean, what you seem to be saying is that uh, jobs were made redundant in Dundalk and at the same time, jobs were created in Bangalore in India. PayPal has over 200 operations or operations rather in in 200 countries that's almost in every single country on planet earth do you not accept that uh, this may be just nothing more than a coincidence well i can't rule it out but my i can't well here what i'm seeing is that there was a particular um operation that as i say what they term uk credit collections was operated out of dundalk and people on Friday were awaiting word and whether they had kept their job or hadn't kept their job and were facing redundancy. And the day before, that uh, a job spec that looks the same to me as that particular job um, went up online in relation to um, positions in, in Bangalore. So at this point in time, I would like some sort of clarity around this. Now, look, we the, I'd, I'd spoken, obviously, to the Tornisha. I'd spoken to the IDA in relation to this. Um, I have had some interaction with the company. And, look, everyone is saying that they're absolutely committed, and we hope that they are, to staying in Dundalk. But I think this is one of the worries that people had. And, you know, their worries look like that they were absolutely um, true, that they came through. So um, we we just we we just we need it. We need a huge. Okay, but at, at the same time, yeah. As I said, PayPal of operations in two hundred countries uh, at least. Uh, so it's it's a strong likelihood that these type of jobs would be cropping up every other day, if not every other week. Isn't that the case? There. Are- PayPal is going to have a huge amount of operations across the world. So therefore, yes, will they be employing a huge amount of people? But we're talking about very, very specific operations. We're talking about an operation that was run outside of Dundalk. So uh, that was run in, sorry, in Dundalk. So therefore, we want clarity in relation to whether these are the same positions. That's that's the only information that we're looking for in relation to this. Um, and we will also look for whatever clarity can be given in relation to the commitments that have been given that PayPal is is like they heard that PayPal is absolutely committed 
to Ireland and particularly to the site in Nundalk because obviously there's a huge amount of people that are still employed there and okay. we want to make sure that that is the situation in, right. in, into the future. But this was an incredibly difficult time obviously for people who were very, very worried and obviously they were particularly worried about these rumours and now they have seen the fact that jobs have gone up that looked like the jobs that some people in Nundalk okay. lost. Okay, um, l- let's be realistic here, Rory. I mean, PayPal is one of these uh, what are called uh, globalised operations. They have a footprint in almost every country on planet Earth. And the reality is, whether we like it or whether we don't, that companies of this size will always go where they can get, if you like, cheaper labour in a cheaper cost-controlled environment. Um, isn't the reality that PayPal have the right to, if you like, uh, close down jobs in Dundalk and develop jobs in India if the costs are cheaper and that's what shareholders want is cheaper costs to maximise profits and there isn't really a lot you can do about it, is there? No, I I accept completely that there are particular issues in relation to companies that they will make money, that they will make decisions on the basis of the bottom line. I don't think there's anybody who's going to deny that. And we are talking about a global economy. We are also talking about a company that has been paid a significant amount of money in relation to employment grants and other grants um, across the period of time. If we talk about 2012, it's like about 73 um, 7.3 million euro was paid in, paid in employment uh, grants for the location in Dundalk um, for PayPal um, by the IDA. Um, now, the IDA always states that when they pay grants that there are particular obligations that companies have and all the rest of it. We understand that the time runs out, but I think we might need to do a bit of tightening up work in in relation to this. But look, I spoke to um, PayPal when this happened. I was given assurances that none of this related to uh, Brexit. I think there are particular issues that arose in relation to what they term the uh, FCA or, or FOS, which is literally in relation to, I suppose, you know, financial operations post-Brexit and that there may have been specific um, issues there and, and that a determination may have been made on that. But look, at this point in time, I think this was a real okay. um, kick to workers, all right? And I have looked for clarity um, in relation to this, as I say, from the company, from the IDA, and I will be doing a follow-up, um, no more than we did in relation to National Pen. And at this point in time, I spoke okay. actually to the Tarnished's office the other week in the sense that I am not particularly happy um, with, let's say, the redundancy that was offered in National Pen, which was two-week statutory, 1.65 for 15-year service, and then only 0.65 uh, for service. Okay, going to have to wrap up there, Rory. Years, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I get that. I understand the situation that we're in, but we need to ensure that due diligence is done and that we have clarity in relation to this sort of information. And it's really about okay. ensuring that we look after our workers. All right. And I should point out that PayPal employ about 2,700 people in this country. Our producer, Marie Kearns, was on to PayPal this morning uh, looking for a statement. But so far, no reply from PayPal. Who knows? They may get in touch before the programme ends. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a listener was in touch by email but didn't uh, want her name 
uh, to be publicised. I've been listening last week to the ongoing saga of the possible closure of the A&E Department or a ladies' hospital in Navan. Why should people in a big county like Meath have to go to another county for A&E services? Louth is quite a small county, but with a huge population in Drogheda, this is naturally going to increase pressure on staffing levels and long waits in A&E, thus holding up emergency ambulances that could be dealing with other serious calls. And the emailer went on to say, we have lost our maternity hospital in Meath in 1983, and now they want to take away our full A&E service also. Even at the moment, all ambulances are being directed to Drogheda or Cavan. Nothing is being allowed to go to Navan. So thanks very much uh, for getting in touch. Now, yesterday, the Taoiseach said that it would be a very serious situation if the United Kingdom enacted its bill to override parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. He was speaking on the Sunday morning programme on the BBC, and he warned it risked causing economic vandalism. Well, I spoke to this and a number of other issues with the Minister for European Affairs, Fianna Fáil TD uh, for Thomas... Fianna Fáil TD for East Mead, Thomas Byrne. Uh, I caught up with him earlier this morning in a busy and noisy Dublin airport and I began by asking him what damage could this do to the daily movement of goods and people? Well look, I mean, I don't think there's ever going to be any danger to the movement of people and that will never be a problem. The problem always was with goods. Now, I still don't think there'll be any problem whatsoever with goods. There will be no hard border on the island of Ireland. Um, however, um, the reason that will be the case is that we have the protocol and it's essential that the protocol stays. For example, uh, agriculture, particularly milk, uh, dairy, the dairy industry, is entirely dependent on the protocol. And the reason for that is that if you look at Lakeland Dairies, for example, which a lot of farmers in this area uh, would be members of, their milk comes from north and south, is processed, is mixed, uh, is sold north, south and exported, of course, as well. So it's entirely mixed and that can only happen because of the protocol. Uh, it's simply not possible for any cross-border agricultural industry to operate without the protocol. So it's going to have to stay for that reason and for many other reasons, also for manufacturing as well. Um, and I know that some farmers have spoken out about this, but I think that it's a, a difficult question that I don't think unionists have had to answer yet as to what would happen with agriculture uh, if the protocol wasn't there. Isn't one of the problems here that while there is a legal action ongoing between the European Commission and the UK, this legal action could take over a year, maybe two years to play out. And in the meantime, the DUP is using the failure of the London government to abolish the Northern Ireland Protocol. And this means we might not have a Northern Ireland executive for at least a year and maybe two years. Well, the only people who will suffer from that, of course, will be the people of Northern Ireland. Look, the reality is this legislation will not be passed uh, in the House of Commons or the House of Lords uh, for at least 18 months. So nothing's going to happen in relation to the protocol between now and then. And in any event, uh, the protocol is an international legal agreement that Britain has signed with the European Union. And they're not, it's not possible simply to walk away from it. Um, so people need to get a dose of reality here about what is and what isn't possible. And also to look at the benefits of the protocol. And yes, if there are disadvantages to the protocol, that's what the EU has always been willing to talk uh, and to show flexibility. 
At a time when there's a cost of living crisis all over the Western world, but particularly on the island of Ireland, uh, isn't there the danger that uh, if the Northern Ireland executive doesn't get up and running because of this logjam over the Northern Ireland protocol, uh, that the days of direct rule from London uh, could kick in and that the future of the executive uh, may be in danger to the point where it may never function again? Isn't that a possibility? Well, look, I don't think we should ever say never in relation to this. Um, the institutions are there for a reason. They're there to deliver for the people on the ground. Um, the truth is, um, if the Northern Ireland government or the executive is not there, they won't be able to deal with the issues, the cost of living issues that we deal with in Dublin or London deal with. Instead, they'll just simply have to wait uh, for decisions from, from London, and they haven't exactly shown themselves to be always in tune with the needs uh, of Northern Ireland. So, so I think that people in Northern Ireland will, will start begin to lose patience Uh, without uh, an executive in place. Uh, One of the proposals uh, that the British are putting forward is this concept of what's called a green channel and a blue channel. In other words, if goods are moving from GB to NI, uh, they move through a green channel and there are no customs checks. Uh, And if goods are moving into Northern Ireland and onto the Republic, they go through a a blue channel, if you like. Uh, Is that system workable? It is, if it's done with the EU. Um, it can, it's definitely not workable if it's simply done unilaterally because we on the EU side would need to know what goods are coming through each particular channel. But there is absolutely the possibility of express lanes uh, for goods uh, that are coming and are going on to the single market. That is something that the EU has spoken about, but it requires both sides to sit together. It certainly cannot happen if the British government just decides to make it happen because I think the EU has a vested interest in making sure that uh, it can see what goods are coming through. Um, and that's that's what the protocol's for. But but we've already said we're willing to work on that. What we can't understand is why the British haven't recipro- reciprocated uh, with negotiations on that. How soon do we expect uh, the British government, if you like, to find themselves in a court of law with the European Commission to deal with this? Well, it's difficult to know. Um, I think there's no doubt it will end up in the European Court of Justice. Uh, I'm on my way to Luxembourg today where we'll get a, an update and we'll have a discussion with... Uh, Vice President of the Commission, Mara Shepovich. Uh, so we'll see uh, his view on that. We'll know more about that today and tomorrow. Um, but this is where it's going to end up, and it has already done a tremendous reputational damage to Britain. Uh, their economy is not doing as well as, you know, and every economy is under pressure, but their economy seems to be under more pressure than most at the moment. So this is a difficult situation for them. If I can move on to the situation in Ukraine, NATO said yesterday that the signs are that this war is not going to end any time soon and indeed uh, could go on for a number of years. What can the EU Commission do, if you like, to put the squeeze on Russia? Well, look, I mean, this is a a military conflict, so I suppose the EU has a role, but it's limited. Uh, The EU has already given, uh, member states have given weapons, Ireland gave non-lethal equipment. Um, that will probably continue, but I would have thought mainly through NATO. Um, so what we need to do is, I suppose, give the Ukrainians hope, uh, which is about what their membership of the EU is about and about making their country a better place, which is what I think that they want. Um, but we've also got to make sure as well that, and I know that Mr. Coveney is in Luxembourg today as well, and on their agenda is the whole issue of food security and how the movement of food. And, and that's very, very important for each and every one of us, particularly for African countries, which will suffer from famine effectively this year because of what Russia is doing. And we will see 
uh, and are seeing much higher food prices. So all of these discussions that we're, hap- uh, that we're having are designed not only to give benefits to Ukrainians, which of course they badly need, uh, but also to, to ensure that the knock-on effects on us are dealt with in the most effective way possible. Ukraine has applied to join the European Union and the European Commission has effectively accepted that application. But in realistic terms, how soon could it be before Ukraine becomes a full member of the EU? That will take time. Uh, I've no doubt about that. But what the acceptance of candidate status means is that there will be the possibility of funds to be unlocked, but also that we work with Ukraine to improve uh, their country improves some of the issues that they have, which they will acknowledge that they have, make it into an even more modern country and continue to break those old, you know, Soviet ties that are obviously long broken, but uh, to, I suppose, mould them into a, a proper Western democracy, which is what they want to be. So there'll be a lot of work on going on that. Um, now, what you don't I mean, the war will have to end, of course, and what you don't want then is to drag it on too long because some of the countries of the former Yugoslavia have been waiting a long, long time. And, we need to keep the pressure on in relation to them as well, um, that any blockages that are there uh, would be removed. But I think what's happening this week, and let's not forget that Ireland was, a, I suppose, a leader on this, and that we, until, until last week we were basically the only Western European country that was uh, supporting this wholeheartedly. Um, and I think our position has been vindicated now when you see all of the member states uh, coming around to this view. And it's, it's something that we could give Ukraine because each single member state of the European Union has the exact same um, influence or, or decision on this because it's a, it requires unanimity. So, so this is something I think that was very important to people in Ukraine, and they have acknowledged that uh, in conversations that I've had and that Tichuk has had as well. A lot of people are, if you like, viewing the rise in the cost of living to the Ukrainian situation and uh, the former scenario whereby a lot of oil was flowing into Europe from Russia and so on. People are looking for, if you like, answers at a time when their disposable income uh, is diminishing in their pockets. Uh, is the European Commission with the US doing anything to try and persuade OPEC countries, the likes of Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, to produce more oil so that the price of petrol and diesel can come down and that this will have a positive knock-on effect on the cost of living? Yeah, look, I mean, that's happening all the time. I mean, it's only really in the last month or so that the EU has sort of got together to say, look, we're going to try and purchase gas and oil uh, together um, because of the situation. And they've done deals with uh, some countries in the eastern Mediterranean on gas. Um, I know that, and, and the effort is going on in relation to oil as well, uh, between, with the US government as well. Uh, this is a very, very difficult situation. There's clearly a shortage. Uh, I'm hopeful it will even itself out. But, you know, that's, that's not something that anybody can predict with any confidence. Moving on to local matters, uh, last week we spoke to Northeast Doctors on Call. They are going to reduce the number of hours that their service is available. They've uh, expressed concern about uh, the fact that they are stretched for resources and so on. What can the government do to, to deal with this? Well, I think there, there should be a full meeting between the government and, and the doctors involved in this cooperative. I mean, as I understand it, this is a private cooperative that's effectively funded by the government and funded by people who, who pay uh, to to go to it and use their medical cards, etc. So, so this needs to be resolved through discussions. It's not going to be resolved through political debate. Um, it is important that we have this. Doctors have always provided it through the night service. When individual doctors stopped providing this, it was, um, you know, it was done through a co-op method. I mean, by and large, that's been really, really successful. Um, and I think that that needs to continue. But it's not. Look, it's not going to be solved by 
you know, the, the doctor's co-op-issuing press releases are writing individually to us um, in the middle of what already is a major health debate, I suppose, at local level, um, but through discussions with the health board. And I notice that the date they put on it is August, so I'm very hopeful and confident this will be resolved by then. But they make the point that uh, people are leaving the profession. It's not attractive anymore to become a GP. What does the government plan to do to try and make the whole area of being a general practitioner rather more attractive for student doctors to get into? Well, that's a general issue. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a major point, And it's linked in even to the Naval Hospital issue as well. Um, that we want to create as many specialties as possible. Uh, people want to excel in those specialties. We've got to give them the opportunity to do that. We have to increase education. We've, we've already done that to some extent, uh, and that's going to continue. But it's not going to... That, that particular issue, the shortage of doctors, isn't going to be solved by, by, by August, and we're going to work with what we have uh, between now and then, I think, and I've no doubt that if we have discussions that this will be solved. But this, of course, is a major, a major issue. Uh, but one that I think that we're determined to solve. But the doctors have to work with us on that as well. Uh, turning to Navin Hospital, and we had the announcement by the HSE last Monday that it plans to, if you like, change the way the hospital functions. The signs are that more and more A&E uh, situations will be transferred to Our Lady's Hospital in Drogheda. Uh, the HSE uh, is saying one thing, the Department of Health is saying another. Uh, in terms of angry people who are out there and are looking for answers, I mean, we're one week on. What can you tell listeners about what's going to happen at Navin Hospital? Well, look, the government has uh, not satisfied itself that there's capacity at Drogheda um, to deal with the extirpation of Navin, so the government has stopped this at the moment. But look, what is the HSE asking us to do? And more importantly, what are the medical experts and the scientists telling us? They're telling us that the sickest 10% of patients who use Navin A&E should, would really be better off in a bigger hospital. Now, the question is, if I was in that position or if any other TD was in that position, I think this is what TDs need to be asked, would they reject that advice? Of course they would not reject that advice. They would go to the hospital that best suited them. This, this means that 90% would continue to use Navin Hospital. Now, our job and our responsibility in government is to make sure that Drogheda can cope with that small number of patients. That's not clear at the moment, just to be fair. Uh, but also that the experience going into Navin Hospital will be relatively unchanged then for the other 90%. What we do know is that Despite the opposition claims of cuts, more money has gone into Navin Hospital than ever before. There are more people working there than ever before. Uh, so we've got to make sure uh, that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I would call on the opposition. They seem to be Sinn Féin and Ain 2 seem to be competing with each other in terms of public meetings. What we want here is the best for the health of the people uh, of County Mead. And the vast majority of people of County Mead use a range of hospitals. Uh, I've used Navin myself. I've used Dundalk, Drogheda, Beaumont. Uh, in terms of family members. Um, so we, that, I suspect, is the common experience around the place. So Navin is a centre of excellence for a number of specialties. Drogheda is, uh, Dundalk is a minor injury unit, Beaumont, Matter, we know what they do. Yeah, sure. So, but can I put the point to you? What you seem to be saying there is that any transfer of A&E scenarios to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda is on hold until Drogheda gets extra bed capacity. Is that the case? Yeah. Well, yeah. Absolutely, that's the case, because we're not clear that the capacity is there. But when this does happen, what would mean is that the sickest people will go for their operations. This is 10%, 1 in 10, go for their operations to draw that. Many of them actually would be back in Navin uh, for the rehabilitation or the get-well phase when the rehab unit is back up and running. So this is, this is completely different to the way the opposition are. The opposition are more or less telling you and that the hospital is closed and they see the posters I say Sinn Féin named to separate public meetings. It's all about how we can get votes. What I'm about, actually, 
how we can make people better, how we can get more services into Navin Hospital, how we can get more people through the door. That's what I'm determined to do, and I think that's what the reasonable people of me see. This shouldn't be seen as a loss, because it's not a loss. There's more people there. There will be more people treated in Navin Hospital than ever before. Okay, but let me put the point to you, Thomas. Um, Does the government have plans to expand the bed capacity at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda? Yes, there are certainly plans to do that, but they're not there yet, and that's why we, that, that's why this decision cannot be taken at this particular time, and that's why the government has stalled the decision, because certainly the capacity is not there in Drogheda at the moment. There you go. That's uh, Minister for European Affairs and Fianna Fáil TD from me, the Easter, Thomas Byrne, speaking to me earlier on from a noisy Dublin airport. Just want to get to one or two of your comments. And two particular comments have come in, more or less saying the same thing. Mark from Navin said, It is a disgrace that when unity is needed, Sinn Féin seems to have abandoned the Save Navin Hospital campaign and are engaging on a solo run, setting up a rival campaign. Peter in Kells was in touch saying, it's very disappointing to see Sinn Féin taking a partisan approach on such an important issue here in Mead. They should get fully behind the Save Navin Hospital campaign and stop trying to make political hay out of it. So those two comments uh, echoing a similar uh, position. And a listener was in touch to say on WhatsApp that they are from Monaghan. Our A&E was closed down and subsequently our fine hospital is only doing minor injury, dental scans and some outpatient appointments. We now have to travel 40 minutes to Cavan or over an hour to Drogheda and endure long waiting times when we get there. The closure of A&E in Navan will be a disaster for us in this region. OK, we'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Damien English is Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail and Fine Gael TD for Meath West and he joins me to talk about about the new living wage. But before we get to that, Damien, can I just ask you there, in light of what Thomas Byrne just said, are we to take it that if uh, bed capacity at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda is increased, we will see this downgrading of A&E at Navin Hospital? It's like, uh, I didn't hear Thomas Byrne there, but just to clarify, Ken, where, where this is at in my point of view, um, we have a proposal from the medical experts, the doctors, um, in relation to what they want to see changed at Navin Hospital. Uh, there's many other medical opinions locally. Uh, I've repeatedly said on this programme, uh, going back over the last seven or eight months and well before that, that if what we want here is the best health service for our people that we represent. To achieve that, we have to have medical consensus around what that is. We have to be convinced as politicians, because I'm not a medical expert, but I would need those medical people to convince me uh, that things, uh, well, you know, what is the best services here? And the two options are, do you uh, d- deal with the, the, the concerns they have with Navin Hospital relating to the risk? How do you achieve that in investment in, in resources for people and facilities? That's number one. Or is it the best result for people of Navin and Mead uh, to, 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 to deliver that service at the Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda? And I want to be very clear, Ken, I have not been convinced so far to be able to be in a position to recommend any changes. If I was convinced, I would be on here, one of the first, because I will always recommend what is the best for health service, regardless of where that's at for the people I represent, always. But we're not there yet. Uh, and we've had a number of meetings. Last week was another one of those to tease through those proposals. I still have a lot of unanswered questions and concerns. Uh, and a big focus of that is absolutely around is the capacity 
in the lure tossing to deal with the number of people who would then go from Navin. I've said before and I'll say again, okay. there's no issue. The hospital is not closing. The hospital will always be open. There'll always be hundreds of people employed there and that all will right. always happen. It's the other base we have to focus in on and that's a combination of medical all opinion right. to okay. guide us on our decision. But we're not anywhere near that. Right. And the Minister has stepped in to prevent those proposed changes because we're not happy. We have okay. not got all the answers of assurances we need. Okay, I, I, we've invited you on to talk about uh, the living wage and so on. Um, now, I think the plan, as I understand, is that the living wage will be set at 60% of the medium, median wage uh, in any given year, which in 2022 would be €12.17 Euro and 17 cent per hour. Now, the plan here, as I understand, is that this is going to be phased in over four years. So we're looking at 2026. I mean, by 2026, the world could be a different place. We're already seeing a cost of living increase uh, that's leaving a lot of working people with very little money in their pockets. I mean, by the time four years comes around, the proposed increase will mean little or damn all to people who are working uh, as employees. So how do you see this being phased in and what sort of benefits is it going to bring to working people? Okay, well, well, two things, Ken. First of all, you know, this is to try to benefit working people and to make sure work always pays. And to build on other interventions in relation to changes, the tax code, social protection, um, minimum wage has increased over the last seven or eight years a, a number of times. Uh, changes to the tax credits um, and recognising sick pay, uh, also enrolling for pensions. So we're constantly trying to make sure that it's worth your while going to work and that you're properly rewarded. The living wage is part of that concept that you have a socially acceptable wage that gives you a reasonable standard of living. The aim is to achieve that over the next four years. We would have one of the highest minimum wages already in Europe, uh, but when you bring in cost of living, we go from probably second to about fifth. We do believe if we make these changes, Ireland will be in out front leading when it comes to uh, a, a, a living wage, stroke minimum wage. Just to clarify, this process is separate to the uh, immense pressure that people are under today with the cost of living. And this living wage concept was a process started a year ago by the Tornister. He asked the Low Pay Commission, which is a combination of employer bodies and employee bodies, stroke unions, in conjunction with academia and, and independent experts to come forward to rec- make recommendations to government to achieve a living wage over a period of years. Okay, but the recommendation is, Ken, that we link that to not a fixed amount but to a, a percentage that will change, a 60% percentage that will, that will be the same percentage over all the years ahead of us, but the amount of money could, could greatly change. At the moment, if you implement it, it would bring the minimum wage from 10.50 to 12.17. That could be higher in three or four years' time. But it's to, it's to achieve that percentage. And the percentage recommended by employers, employees working together uh, with independent advice uh, is a 60% of the median, which is approximately the average wage out there at this moment in time. Okay, but can I ask you... Can I ask you, Damien, what is the definition of a living wage? Because what might be a living wage for me might be a different rate for somebody else, depending on one's lifestyle, depending on where one lives, depending on how much one spends every day on food and groceries or whatever. What is the definition of a living wage? Yeah, and Ken, you're right. The difference in everyone's opinion and all over the world as well. The recommendation that's been brought forward by by this group is that it's defined as a socially acceptable standard of living by protecting employment. That the living wage assists you to achieving that and that you're well rewarded for work. But it's also, it's about getting that balance that you don't price yourself out of the market, as in you don't lose jobs because of this. Because what's really important is 
we sustain where we are today and increase it from two and a half million people at work. Because by having those people at work, that gives us the economy, the taxes we need to pay for everything else, like education and health and so on. So we want to protect that. So the, it's a, a living wage is that kind of sweet spot in the middle that gives people a, a reasonable wage for their work, but also that they can have a reasonable standard of living. It doesn't mean that it covers, you know, that, 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 that that's the wage everybody should be on. It's that median, it's the average, it's in the middle. Uh, and as many people, very often this journey of a living wage will bring us to this being our minimum wage and most people then will be on a wage above that because there's about 12% of the population at the moment time are okay, but the minimum wage. Right Damien, but you're putting a formula in place now that in real terms will be phased in over four years. By 2026 isn't the likelihood that what's an acceptable living wage as you determine it now might be unacceptable by 2026? Isn't that the case? But that's why can the formula being put forward and recommended to government, which government are now accepting and recommending for general consultation with the public over a couple of months, is that it's a percentage. It's 60% of the median wages. The median wages are the average wages that are out there, uh, and they change every year. So that will reflect changes in our society, in our economy. And then what we're recommending is that the, the living wage is linked to a percentage. So it will change accordingly. So it's a, it should reflect where we are as a country at any given time, but certainly in four years' time. And the point is well made. At the moment now, inflation is extremely high. For the last 10 years, it was pretty steady. Um, so they lived the minimum wage at the time Okay, kept but, pace with inflation, but sure, now it doesn't. Sure, but it but, didn't keep play, keep pace with the average wage. Okay, but, but le, yeah, but let, let me make the point to you, Damien, that you, you're saying that as wages go up, the minimum wage should go up accordingly because it'll be a percentage. But what guarantee do you have that employers, greedy employers, are going to honour this plan? I think it's unfair, Ken, to say greedy employers. I think we all recognise the majority of employers out there. Uh, look after their staff, look after their teams, because they all work together. Not them all, not them all. No, not them all, but we can't say greedy employers as if it is. Well, let me put it another way. I mean, totally, and and just to be clear, this becomes law, so people are protected in this country, but very strong employment law. The minimum wage, the living wage will become the minimum wage, is protected by law, and employers have to pay that. And in most cases, we can see they do pay. If they don't pay it, they are brought through the WRC and they pay anywhere eventually. So okay, but just, on just one final question. And I mean, I have to make the point to you that if there were no greedy employers, there would be no need for trade unions. And there are trade unions. Just one final question. Uh, the National Economic Dialogue is getting underway today. Uh, will these proposals, uh, if you like, feed into this discussion on where we're going in terms of the economy and the pressure on uh, companies to, if you like, hold on to staff, uh, while at the same time staff getting enough money to be able to, if you like, have a decent standard of living? Yes, Ken, they will feed in, but I, but I have to be very clear, this is separate to, the, to the, the conversation for this year, because people are under immense pressure due to inflation that's outside of our control and driven by energy prices. Government has to respond in a number of ways to that across many departments of interventions of assistance when it comes to energy, when it comes to fuel allowance, when it comes to healthcare, health, where we're trying to reduce the cost, reduce the pressure on people's living. This living wage conversation is one that's been going on for a couple of years and will go on for many more years. It's separate to, the, to this year's events. What's happening this week uh, and, the, and in the next couple of weeks is as we prepare the budget, we sit down with all the, the stakeholders to try to work out how best to spend our budget to reach those who are under serious pressure to pay their bills 
uh, now and in the months ahead as well. And that's what okay. we will do. We've initially responded with about two and a half billion since Christmas of an intervention of assistance to people. And that's in some cases, that's not enough. So we have to go forward. And that's what we will do with the budget upcoming All right. as well. All right. That's Damien English there, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, and also Finnegale TD for Meath West. Maureen was in touch to say regarding Navin Hospital that uh, in November two years ago, she had sepsis and attended Navin Hospital. The service was second to none. She was looked after straight away. They organised all her bloods and paperwork for her to get an operation in the Matter Hospital in Dublin and she thanks Navin Hospital for saving her life. Carmel was in touch to say, yes, okay, listen to the medical experts, but County Meath absolutely needs an emergency service. A medical assessment unit still needs a GP. The people in Meath need their health service. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, politicians have been called on to progress safeguarding legislation and the establishment of a new adult safeguarding authority to prevent and reduce abuse, neglect and coercive control. Pascal Moynihan is the Safeguarding Ireland Programme Manager, joins me on the line right now. Uh, First of all, what would this legislation actually do, Pascal? Uh, Good morning, Ken. The legislation really would give statutory authority and statutory responsibility for an independent body to ensure that any concerns relating to adult safeguarding would be dealt with. Uh, the problem at the moment is there is no dedicated adult safeguarding legislation in Ireland and there is no one body charged with uh, uh, looking after people or, or responding to concerns of adult abuse. And the current response is framed only in the healthcare setting and adult abuse unfortunately takes place in every setting. Okay, but how does this work? I mean, it's one thing having the legislation, but how does somebody, if you like, police this? Or how does somebody uh, deal with the issue of adults being abused? What's different What's different to this legislation and existing, we'll say, uh, criminal legislation where people have been either assaulted or abused and you go to the Gardaí? What's so different here? Okay, there's a couple of a couple of elements to that. At the moment, uh, the health service, the HSE, is responsible for uh, dealing with concerns of adult safeguarding in within the health service uh, and within uh, some other services. Unfortunately, there is no legislation backing up that uh, that uh, responsibility. So, within the HSE, there are safeguarding and protection teams in place. But, for example, they have no authority to go into somebody's own home. They have no authority to go into private nursing homes or voluntary nursing homes. Uh, so they lack the authority to do anything. Uh, what, what adult safeguarding legislation would do would place an onus on all agencies to respond to concerns of, of uh, uh, adult abuse. Um, for example, financial institutions... Uh, legal institutions, and you mentioned things like there. We have other legislation in place, but a lot of a lot of concerns about uh, adult abuse relate to what some might term soft abuse. So the taking of small amounts of money from an older person from their pension, or some some sense of entitlement to somebody else's money or assets. Uh, and very often these things are not seen as abuse and not recognised as abuse. Um, and making decisions for older people because they're 
simply because they're old. Okay, but just supposing for the sake of debate, uh, there's an elderly pensioner, maybe sits at home all day and somebody comes in for a chat and, as you say, takes money or perhaps steals an item from uh, from a house. Uh, What happens next? Does it become a guard the matter or do you sort of step in and improve security or, you know, in terms of, I suppose, promoting confidence for the elderly person that the Safeguarding Ireland programme is looking after them. What can you do when that scenario arises? Uh, okay. First, I say it wouldn't be us stepping in again. We're, we're, we're um, promoting the uh, concept of the formation of an adult safeguarding authority. It wouldn't be Safeguarding Ireland. It would be an independent statutory authority. So in the example you gave there of a person visiting somebody and taking small amounts of money. What we would, what we're um, um, proposing is that there be specific teams in place that would investigate such concerns. Very often this type of abuse is not viewed as abuse. So the person taking the money might think, oh, sure, I'm entitled to it. I do that personal shopping or I look after him or whatever. There is no entitlement by anybody to another person's money or assets. So it's, it's firstly to respond to that. We're, we're not looking for uh, uh, convictions of people uh, necessarily who carry out this abuse. The first step is to try and stop the abuse and to try and make it clear that such behaviour is not acceptable. Um, and a country shapes its culture to a certain extent by its laws. And as long as we don't have adult safeguarding laws in place, there's a certain acceptance of that okay. type of uh, uh, behaviour. Finally, Pascal, I mean, what have you done to try and convince politicians to create a safeguarding authority? Well, the most recent thing we've done is we published a report uh, last week called Identifying Risks, Sharing Responsibilities. And that's a report that looks at the current situation in relation to adult abuse in Ireland and the challenges and weaknesses within the system. So we met with uh, members of the Oireachtas last Thursday in Leinster House to try and outline to them specifically the current challenges and weaknesses. And we've, we've issued... Um, and, and did they give you any indication this is going to happen? Uh, there is a bill we understand coming before uh, being introduced in the Dáil towards the end of the year. Hopefully that will happen. There was an adult safeguarding bill introduced by Senator Colette Kelleher in 2017, but unfortunately that has lapsed okay. now. So we're hoping to uh, revitalise that. Not that specific All right. bill, but adult safeguarding. Yeah. Oh hopefully by the end of the year. Right, we leave it there. That's Pascal Moynihan, Safeguarding Ireland Programme Manager, joining us on the programme. Recost of Living, Michael from RD was in touch. There are price hikes in every single item you touch. Everything has gone up. I'm a gardener. I bought posts for the garden three weeks ago, went back this weekend, and they had gone up by €1.50 each. There is no justification for some of the price hikes because there is no price control. And that just about wraps it up from me. I just want to remind you that Michael Reid will be back in the hot seat tomorrow. I want to thank uh, Chris Murray on sound, Maggie McGuire and Marie Cairns who produced and researched to put the programme together. Sinead Brazel is next. From myself, Ken Murray. Until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.